If you love the Murder Minute app and the Murder Minute podcast, we have good news. For more true crime anytime, download the Himalaya app and subscribe to Murder Minute for ad-free early episodes and killer bonus content. Our first 500 subscribers will be entered to win a $500 gift card. What are you waiting for? Download Himalaya and subscribe to Murder Minute. Welcome to Murder Minute. Today, the man who killed Halloween, also known as the Candyman. But first, your true crime headlines. In North Carolina, a cold case has been solved thanks to an anonymous tip to a Facebook group. The tip came in to the local group called Fighting Crime News and Who's Wanted, which has about 63,000 members who discuss crimes, large and small, within a four-county region in eastern North Carolina. The group posted a flyer on October 20th highlighting the unsolved disappearance of Deborah Elaine Deans, a 29-year-old waitress who vanished in 2004. That post generated what law enforcement officials called a very accurate and very reliable tip, which led investigators to human remains, which are believed to be those of the victim. Four days after the flyer was posted, police arrested Kimberly Hancock, 49, the victim's sister-in-law and former roommate. The Nash County Sheriff's Office uncovered the human remains buried in a shallow grave behind Hancock's trailer in Spring Hope, North Carolina, and she is now charged with murdering her missing sister-in-law. The woman who runs the Facebook page, who wishes to remain anonymous, told reporters that she's been posting about Dean's disappearance since about a year after she started the Facebook page seven years ago. It is one of several crimes in the region that the page has helped to solve. An elderly couple was found dead in their New Jersey home, and their son is now a person of interest in the murder investigation. Frank and Joanne Warner, both 73, were found dead in their home in a senior living community in Washington Township, New Jersey. Their son, 50-year-old Todd Warner, who lived in the home with his parents, is being sought for questioning in their deaths. Todd currently has active warrants for credit card theft and motor vehicle theft. Todd Warner is described as 5'11 and 220 pounds, and he could be driving a four-door silver 2019 Kia Soul with New Jersey plates. He is considered to be armed and dangerous. A woman dubbed Swing Set Susan after harassing a group of teenagers at a playground in a now viral video has been arrested by Fort Worth police. 38-year-old Samantha Louise Ely was arrested and charged with impersonating a police officer after one of the teens in the viral video was able to identify her from a photo lineup. During the October 16th confrontation, she can be seen yelling and cursing at a group of teenagers at Dream Park in Fort Worth. During the one-minute video, the woman identifies herself as PD and threatens to arrest the teenagers if they don't leave the park. The video has been viewed more than five million times. Ely was already in jail on a separate assault charge when she was arrested. 
If she is convicted of impersonating an officer, she faces up to 10 years in prison and a $10,000 fine. Those are your true crime headlines. Up next, the man who killed Halloween. But first, a quick break. Have you thought about talking to someone but don't know where to start? BetterHelp makes it easy to connect with a licensed professional counselor, caring professional specializing in the issues that you want to talk about. Get BetterHelp at your own time and your own pace. Schedule secure video and phone sessions or text your therapist worldwide and you can start communicating in under 24 hours. This is truly an affordable option. And now, BetterHelp is offering our listeners 10% off their first month with the code MURDERMINUTE. If you've been wanting to talk, you can get started now. Go to betterhelp.com slash MURDERMINUTE. Simply fill out the questionnaire and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash MURDERMINUTE. Welcome back to Murder Minute. Today, the man who killed Halloween, also known as the Candyman. On October 31st, 1974, in Deer Park, Texas, 30-year-old Ronald Clark O'Brien, his wife, and his two children, Elizabeth and Timothy, had dinner at the home of their neighbors, Jim Bates, his wife, and their children, and got ready to go trick-or-treating. It was a rainy night that Halloween, so Ronald threw on a trench coat, and he and Jim accompanied the children on their door-to-door candy mission. One of the houses was dark. The children decided to give it a try anyway. They ran up and rang the doorbell. But there was no answer. Either the residents weren't home, or maybe they didn't celebrate Halloween. Either way, the children gave up quickly and ran off to the next house. Jim Bates quickly followed. Ronald O'Brien lagged behind, but soon came running to catch up with the group. And Ronald had good news. He held in his hand five giant 22-inch pixie sticks. Turned out someone had been in that dark house after all. Ronald gave each of the three children one of the five giant sugar-filled tubes. And the group hit a few more houses. But after just half an hour and two streets, the rain soon sent the O'Briens and the Bateses back home with their loot. When they returned to the Bateses' house, Ronald O'Brien gave the fourth pixie sticks to the couple's five-year-old daughter. The O'Briens were about to head home when the Bates' doorbell rang. It was a ten-year-old boy that they recognized from church. Ronald O'Brien handed him the fifth and final pixie sticks, and he, Elizabeth, and Timothy headed home. As the children got out of their costumes and into their pajamas, Ronald O'Brien told them that they could each have one treat before bedtime. 
Timothy chose the pixie sticks. But the powdered sugar was stuck in the straw, so he asked his father to help him. After it was loosened, Timothy took his first mouthful. He stopped after the first taste. It was bitter, he complained. So Timothy's father poured him a glass of Kool-Aid to help him wash it down. But something was wrong. Just 30 seconds after Ronald O'Brien left his son's bedroom, he heard him cry out, Daddy! Daddy! Timothy wailed. My stomach hurts. It seemed like it wasn't long before he was up and complaining his stomach hurt and he didn't feel good, O'Brien told the Associated Press. He was bent over vomiting, and I was holding him when he just went limp. The boy was rushed to the hospital. But at 10 p.m. on October 31, 1974, was pronounced dead on arrival. The investigation began immediately, and the chief medical examiner had a hunch. He asked what the young man's breath smelled like. A call to the morgue confirmed his suspicion. Almonds. It was cyanide. Police rushed to collect the four remaining pixie sticks before another child could be poisoned. One boy was found asleep in his bed, clutching the pixie sticks tube in his hand. He had attempted to eat it, but wasn't strong enough to undo the staple. Miraculously, all four remaining pixie sticks were recovered, unopened. An autopsy revealed that Timothy had ingested enough cyanide to kill three grown men. Examination of the pixie sticks tubes showed that the top of the tubes had been cut open and the first two inches of powdered candy had been removed and replaced with the deadly poison. Then the top of the tubes were bent over, the label was placed back on, and it was stapled shut. All five pixie sticks were confirmed to have been packed with cyanide. The next day, police urged citizens to turn over all of their Halloween candy for testing. The community panicked, and parents from all across the region brought their children's Halloween halls in to be tested for contaminants. None of the pixie sticks contained poison. Nevertheless, news of the child who died from poisoned Halloween candy spread, and parents across the country vowed to never celebrate Halloween again. One local detective working the case told an Associated Press reporter that parents should throw out all of the Halloween candy collected by their children as a precaution. It's just not worth the risk, he said. If parents want their children to eat candy, let them go to the store and buy candy. All of the O'Brien's neighbors were questioned multiple times about the candy they gave out that night. But none of them handed out pixie sticks. And no other children who went trick-or-treating in the area received any either. 
when police questioned Ronald O'Brien, attempting to track down which house the pixie sticks originated from. Ronald struggled to remember. Then, he told police about the darkened house. He said that after the children and Mr. Bates had taken off to the next house, he stayed behind and tried the doorbell a second time. This time, the door opened, just wide enough for a man's hairy arm to thrust the five tubes at him. And that was all that Ronald could remember. Police drove Ronald back to the neighborhood and walked with him along the two streets that the group had been trick-or-treating at, in the hopes that Ronald would recognize the house. But Ronald O'Brien just wasn't sure. And now, police were getting frustrated, even suspicious. A few days later, they took him around again. This time, Ronald remembered. The house that Ronald O'Brien pointed out belonged to an air traffic controller named Courtney Melvin. Police knocked on the door. But once again, no one was home at the darkened house. Their next stop was Houston's Hobby Airport, where they intended to arrest him. Instead, they learned that on Halloween night, Courtney Melvin's house was dark because he was at work. He didn't get home until 11 p.m. And Courtney Melvin had timesheets and nearly 200 witnesses to prove it. As Ronald O'Brien's story of the darkened house quickly fell apart, detectives shifted the focus of their investigation on him. Ronald O'Brien was an optician who worked for Texas State Optical. He wouldn't be working there for much longer, though. Ronald was soon to be fired, as his bosses had recently discovered that he had been stealing. In fact, as investigators dug into Ronald's work history, they discovered that Ronald had lost 21 jobs in just 10 years. He was nearly $100,000 in debt, close to half a million dollars today. His home was in foreclosure, and his car was about to be repossessed. But when investigators learned that Ronald O'Brien had recently taken out life insurance policies on his two children, totaling $60,000, and that he had called his insurers about the payout at 9 a.m. the morning after Timothy's death, the motive was clear. Ronald O'Brien had planned to kill his children for the insurance money. When detectives discovered that Ronald O'Brien had attempted to buy cyanide at a chemical supply store just before Halloween, they got a warrant. A search of the O'Brien home turned up a pair of scissors with residue matching the pixie sticks. And on November 5th, 1974, Ronald O'Brien was arrested for the murder of his son, the attempted murder of his daughter, and the attempted murder of three other innocent children.
The trial began in Houston on May 5, 1975. Several witnesses testified that Ronald O'Brien showed an unusual interest in cyanide and its effects. A chemist who was acquainted with O'Brien testified that as early as summer of 1973, over a year before the murder, Ronald had contacted him asking questions about cyanide and how much might be fatal. David Lee Jackson, a chemical company salesman, testified that in late October, just before the murder, Mr. O'Brien entered his sales area minutes before closing. He asked if we stocked potassium cyanide. Jackson testified, and I said, yes. And he asked about size and price. He was most concerned about the least priced. Ronald's own sister-in-law and brother-in-law also testified that at Timothy's funeral, the supposedly grieving father talked about using the insurance money to take a long vacation and buy some things. The only inescapable conclusion is that this man killed his own flesh and blood for money, Prosecutor Mike Hinton told the court. Think how easy it would be for him to kill a stranger for money. Ronald O'Brien's only defense was built upon urban legends, presenting a theory of the kind of psychopath who hands out candied apples with razor blades just for the thrill. An imaginary boogeyman lurking in the neighborhood somewhere, handing out poisoned Halloween candy, killing at random. Ronald O'Brien stuck to his story. But the evidence was clear. The only monster in the neighborhood that Halloween night was Ronald O'Brien. Friends, co-workers, and family all testified against him. Even his wife. He beat the wall and asked questions out loud why an eight-year-old boy had to die, Daneen O'Brien recalled but I did not see any tears. Mrs. O'Brien told the court that she only learned of the $20,000 life insurance policies taken out recently on their children after Timothy's death. She knew only of $10,000 policies taken out by her husband earlier that year, despite her objections. I tried to discourage him, she said, but he said it was the thing to do. We didn't have much money. The insurance agent testified that just weeks before the murder, Ronald O'Brien increased the value of the insurance policies by $20,000 each and told the agent that he had made the decision with his wife. He ought to be damned for what he did, prosecutor Mike Hinton said in his closing arguments. Nobody has anything to gain but this defendant. I don't want you to forget for one minute that he wanted to take those other kids with him. On June 3, 1975, the 10-man, 2-woman jury deliberated. Just 46 minutes later, 
they returned with their verdict. Ronald O'Brien was found guilty of capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. He was sentenced to death. Soon after, his wife filed for divorce. Ronald O'Brien was taken to Huntsville Unit in Huntsville, Texas, to await execution. His fellow inmates on death row loathed the child killer, who they dubbed the Candyman. According to Reverend Carol Pickett, a former chaplain for the Texas Department of Criminal Justice, he was, quote, absolutely friendless. The inmates despised him so much that they reportedly petitioned to hold a demonstration on Ronald O'Brien's execution date just to express their hatred of him. Appeals dragged on for nearly 10 years. The first execution date was set for August 8, 1980, then May 25, 1982. Judge Michael McSpadden scheduled a third execution date for October 31, 1982, the eighth anniversary of the crime, and offered to personally take Ronald O'Brien to the death chamber himself. But the execution was delayed for a third time. Finally, on March 31, 1984, the Candyman ate his last meal. Steak, french fries, peas, corn, iced tea, and Boston cream pie. Paul Racer of the Associated Press described Ronald O'Brien's final moments. The execution process began shortly after midnight, when O'Brien was led the eight steps from a holding cell to the death chamber. He was strapped to a hospital cart and needles were inserted into his arms. In a two-minute final statement to 24 witnesses, O'Brien said in a calm, firm voice that the death penalty was wrong, but it, quote, doesn't mean the whole system is wrong. Therefore, I would forgive all who have taken part in any way in my death. Also, to anyone I have offended in any way during my 39 years, I pray and ask your forgiveness, just as I forgive anyone who offended me in any way. And I pray and ask God's forgiveness for all of us, respectively, as human beings. To my loved ones, I extend my undying love. To those close to me, know in your hearts I love you one and all. He concluded with the words, God bless you all, and may God's best blessings be always yours. As the lethal injection was administered, Ronald O'Brien yawned deeply, his chest heaved, and his eyes closed to slits. There was a gurgling sound, and his lips turned blue. Ronald Clark O'Brien was pronounced dead at 12.48 a.m. As the sentence was carried out, a crowd 
of nearly 300 demonstrators in Halloween masks stood outside, cheering, throwing candy, and yelling, trick-or-treat. Before October 31, 1974, it would have been considered paranoid to carefully examine children's Halloween candy for tampering. After, it became common practice. It profoundly affected the whole community, every child of trick-or-treating age, Mike Hinton told the Associated Press. There is no question it had a national effect on Halloween. Despite the fact that there had been no documented incidents of random Halloween candy poisoning before or since Ronald O'Brien used the holiday to try to get away with murdering his children, the fear persists. Experts now recommend that parents closely inspect the seals on all candy collected and throw out anything that appears to be partially open as a precaution. There's a lot of leftover feelings and concerns among parents who were just children then, Hinton explained. He's the man that ruined Halloween for the whole world. This has been Murder Minute. For true crime anytime, follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Murder Minute. And now, for ad-free episodes, early access, and bonus content, follow and subscribe to Murder Minute on Himalaya. Happy Halloween from all of us at Murder Minute. And remember, don't take candy from strangers.